as we continue. Are we on? Always wanted to do that. As we continue our series through the Heidelberg Catechism, we will today arrive at Lord's Day number 12. And before we go there, let us consider God's Word. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and your bulletin says verses 1, 2, and 3, which is correct. But for order's sake, I add verse 4. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And this is the word of the living God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord add his blessing also to the preaching thereof. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are still in the Heidelberg Catechism's exposition of the Apostles' Creed as a compact core summary of our Trinitarian Christian faith. And in question and answer 24, the Catechism explains to us the structure of the Apostles' Creed, asking how are these articles, the Apostles' Creed that is, divided? So how is the Apostles' Creed divided? And the answer is into three parts. God the Father and our creation. Then God the Son and our deliverance. And thirdly, God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. This is the trifold structure of the Apostles' Creed. And according to this trifold structure, we have last week begun to look at the second paragraph of God the Son and our deliverance. By looking at our first, uh, at the first title of our Lord, the title Jesus. And we asked with the Heidelberg Catechism, why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? And the answer was because he saves us from our sins and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. And it was emphasized that Jesus is not only a Savior, but that he is both our only and our exclusive Savior. He is our only Savior as the book of Acts teaches, because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And he is our exclusive Savior, because he will neither share his accomplished work, nor his throne, 
nor his glory with anyone else. Therefore, as soon as we seek to add anything to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, be it our own good works, be it special rites, be it intercession of saints, or anything else, we make Christ's exclusive salvation null and void. It is either Jesus alone or no Jesus at all. That was our exposition of and our explanation for the reason of the name or title, Jesus for our Lord. And this evening, we will take a closer look at Lord's Day 12 and at our Lord's second title, which is Christ. It is not his last name. It is his second title. And Christ means the Anointed One. And we will consider two points this evening. I continue to irritate you with two points. The first one, Anointed Christ, and the second one, Anointed Christians, and we will see that the second point results from the first, and therefore, logically, we will begin with the first, anointed Christ. And question 31 asks us, why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? And the answer is, because he has been ordained by God the Father, and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance he has won for us. Now let us uh, unpack this condensed mass of information into chewable portions. Well, it tells us first in answer 31 that Christ was anointed. And before we assume too much, we should uh, bundle our attention or direct our attention to the term anointed, as I've mentioned before. The title Christ means anointed. The Hebrew title would be Messiah, which means the same, uh, anointed. Now, what does anointed mean? It literally means to oil or to apply oil. Uh, and accordingly, the basic meaning is to pour oil on an object or on a, on a person. That's what usually, or in its core, the, ver the word uh, anointed means. In our context, of course, it refers to the induction into an office, like prophet, priest, or king. So it is a, a, um, a picture for the actual induction into an office. The anointing with oil, therefore, was only a symbol. It was only a picture for the anointing with what? With the anointing with the Holy Spirit. It indicated preparation for a certain office or for a certain service by the receiving of the gift of God's Spirit. Just think of Saul's or David's anointing as kings by the prophet Samuel in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. Those were anointings with oil. But the most 
by far the most important anointing is the anointing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which of course is the reason for his title Christ or Hebrew Messiah, which both mean the anointed one. And at the beginning of his public ministry, recorded in Luke chapter 4, Christ quotes Isaiah chapter 61 in the synagogue in Nazareth, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he reveals himself as the anointed one, as the Messiah, by saying then, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, this was explosive. He goes into the synagogue in Nazareth. They give him the scroll of Isaiah. He turns to chapter 61 about the coming Messiah. He reads it and you can almost see the Jews nodding. And then comes something they did absolutely not expect. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in his hearing. And you can imagine suddenly Mideastern turmoil in the synagogue. Because what Jesus is saying here is that he is the anointed one prophesied to reverse the effects of sin. That he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. That he is the Messiah. And that's why the Jews in the synagogue immediately became so furious that they drove him out of the synagogue, out of the city, and they sought to throw him off a cliff. But it says, but passing through their midst, he went away. He just walked through them and went away. They wanted to kill him right there and then. Now, before we consider to what office or to what offices Christ was anointed, we have to ask the question, who anointed him? You see, Christ was appointed as Savior from before the beginning of the world. Proverbs chapter 8, 23, where he seeks as he speaks at wisdom, as impersonated or personified wisdom. And he says, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. So he was appointed as Savior from before the beginning of the world. And the Heidelberg Catechism rightly, of course, tells us that he was ordained by the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit. So he was anointed by the Father with the Holy Spirit. Of course, as the eternal Son of God, he has always been one with the Holy Spirit, but in his humanity, he had to be anointed with the Holy Spirit when he was baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. And John says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So in this case, the picture became also the, the time and place of the real thing. He was baptized. Remember the word baptized does not necessarily mean a picture that is washing away from sin in his case, but any form of transformation. He was there and then ordained for his threefold office. And while he was uh, sprinkled with water in the same way, the Holy Spirit came up from uh, high down on him. 
And this way he was anointed. Christ himself testifies to this fact in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has what? Anointed me. Also, the apostles testify to it in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. After Peter and John were released from the Jewish council, and after quoting from Psalm 2, they pray. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So nobody shall ever say predestination is not in the Bible. The word, I mean. Now, that we know that it was the Father who anointed Christ with the Holy Spirit, we can now move on to the question as to what offices Christ was anointed to. And our Heidelberg Catechism correctly mentions the three offices of prophet, priest, and king. Those are the three offices of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you have to understand, and I think I've mentioned it before a couple of times, that the Lord Jesus Christ is sometimes also called the last Adam or the second Adam. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that glorious chapter, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You see, both the first and the second or last Adam share the fact that they were both covenant heads, that they were both representatives of a large group of people, Adam, of all of all the people who were born after him in natural generation. And the Lord Jesus Christ became the covenant head for all the elect. So therefore, Adam was the covenant head within the framework of the covenant of works, And Jesus Christ became the covenant head for all those who are truly members of the covenant of grace. And here you have to understand what happened. The second Adam undid for the elect what the first Adam blew. And he did do for them what the first Adam failed to do. So he basically undid the failure of the first Adam for all those who are in Jesus Christ. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ redeemed for himself a definite people from the first Adam's cursed posterity. And the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us that this mediatorial task of Christ consists in carrying out three offices, those three, prophet, priest, and king. Now, in the Old Testament... Those three offices were held by three different lines of people, different lines of individuals, which might have to do with the fallen state of man, uh, if you will, a separation of of powers, so to speak. So this was kind of a, a splitting of these three offices on three different kinds of people. But in Jesus Christ, all three of these messianic offices come together in one person again. And it begins with the office of prophet, where the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us that Christ 
has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. So this is the office of prophet or chief prophet and teacher. Now, in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, we often go there lately, about Christ's office as a prophet. And Peter preaches, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And he continues, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. So what is he saying here? Moses was one of the first to be designated a prophet. Some say he was the first, but I'm a little hesitant because at some point Abraham is also called the prophet. But as far as prophets proper go, Moses was the first. And after Moses, there came a succession of prophets throughout the Old Testament, as you very well know, which culminated and found its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate uh, prophet. And this ultimate, this ultimate prophet in his incarnation, in his becoming man, by his word and spirit, reveals to us God's will for our salvation and all of its ramifications. You see, a prophet was one who told, who told us God's will. And the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation became one, not only by his words and through his spirit, but also through his incarnation, through his appearance, revealed God to us and the way to deliverance, the way to salvation through his Holy Spirit. And those whom the Holy Spirit, in whom the Holy Spirit worked, their eyes were opened. And they saw him and they bowed their knees before him. And those who were not regenerated, they remained blind and they would not see him. And then as the Catechism teaches us that Christ is furthermore not only our prophet or ultimate chief prophet and teacher, but also our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually intercedes for us before the Father. And the Heidelberg Catechism is extremely wise in how it describes these offices because it describes the office of the Old Testament priest and thereby making clear that these Old Testament priests um, were the picture of the ultimate priest who will actually do of what they were only a picture. You see, priesthood is first mentioned with Melchizedek, the priest without beginning or end, in Genesis chapter 14. In Psalm 110 verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ is described as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is not the Aaronic order anymore. This is the order of Melchizedek. And if we read the book of Hebrews, 
in order to find Christ's priesthood explained in depth, we will get a better understanding of what this really means. The, 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 the key word uh, in the book of Hebrews is better, and it shows us how Christ is better than all the pictures, how he is also a better priest than all the pictures the Old Testament priests. For example, chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So it talks now, it compares the Old Testament high priests before the Lord Jesus Christ with our ultimate high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He can sympathize. He knows what it means to be human while being himself sinless. He is our ultimate high priest, a high priest who is compassionate and who can relate to us as he was tempted just like we were. In contrast to uh, all the Old Testament priests and high priests, the Lord Jesus Christ did not merely sacrifice animals, but he offered up himself as a sacrifice to once and for all satisfy divine justice and to reconcile his elect to God. And that's one part of his priesthood, that he did not sacrifice any animals. He sacrificed himself. He became the antitype to all those types in the Old Testament. All these animals who could never wash away sins, they were just pictures for the one Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But there's, of course, another part to the priesthood. Apart from the sacrificing, that's the, the ministry of intercession. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. Comparing again the former priests to our ultimate high priest. Saying, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the second major part of his priesthood. Not only did he give himself, not only pay, did he pay for our salvation, but also he keeps interceding for his elect day and night at the throne of God like a true priest. So Christ is indeed our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually intercedes for us before the Father. And finally, as we continue on in answer 31, Christ is also, and that's the third office, he is our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance he has won for us. Now there are scores of texts in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testaments, that describe Christ as our King. Let us consider just a few. Matthew 21, verse 5, about his triumphal entry to Jerusalem, which is actually a quotation of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So clearly, Christ designated 
as king. Or Isaiah chapter 32, verse 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ described as a king. Or Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Or the whole glorious Psalm 110, which is quoted in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now you have to understand that since Christ is a king, there must also be a kingdom. And this kingdom has come into the world at Christ's first coming. And it has become and begun to grow, just like a mustard seed, that by his second coming it will have grown into a strong and mighty tree. Why am I mentioning this? Because we need optimism. We need to get rid of this sinful pessimism that we carry around that we are the, are the old little me's here, and that in the end everything will go down, and at the last moment Christ will come to our rescue and rapture us out. That is so wrong and so unbiblical. Christ came to induce the kingdom. He came to begin a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that grows and grows like a mustard seed, from the tiny seed into a mighty tree. And it will be that mighty tree when the Lord Jesus Christ will come. And we pray every worship service for missions. We are a church known to give uh, a lot of uh, our means to missions. Well, would we do that if we didn't believe that missions, the missions effort, the Great Commission will succeed? How do we know that? Because we have a king on the throne. A king who is almighty and who has promised us that he will bring it to the end. And that gets us going. Who can fight a war in this world and know at the beginning that the victory is already theirs? Now here we have it and we throw it away? That cannot be. So this kingdom came into the world at his first coming. In Matthew chapter 12, after Jesus had healed a demon-oppressed man, the Pharisees accused him, saying, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So they're basically calling him the devil in order to drive out demons. And Jesus answers them, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now what does that mean? Who is the strong man? Of course it is Satan without a doubt. Who came into his house and plundered him? The Lord Jesus Christ. What did he have to do before he starts plundering? He had to bind him. 
There is no other way to interpret this and many other passages. Satan is bound. And the Lord Jesus Christ, through his people, has started plundering his house. And a big amount of this plunder sits right in front of me. Satan cannot deceive the nations anymore. And he's plundering the nations. He's plundering hell, so to speak, and bring many into his kingdom. And he will expand his kingdom. And the victory is his and will be his. Christ's ascension was his enthronement. And he is king. And not Satan, as so many evangelicals seem to at least functionally believe. Christ is king, not Satan. Revelation chapter 19, verse 16 talks about the rider on the white horse. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus Christ without doubt will not become king. He already is king. He has always been king in his divinity, but he has become king in his humanity, and he rules all things. So these are the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And in our text in Hebrews chapter 1, in the first three verses, we have them all together. If you open your Bibles and look with me, when it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, that is his ministry as a prophet. That he reveals to us the way to salvation and how to live in this world and how to build the kingdom. And then it continues. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. The heir of all things. That makes him a king. Also at the end of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the place of power. That's the place of majesty. So here we have two indications that Christ is already king. Now where do we have the priest? In verse 3, after making purification for sins. That is his office of priest. So you have all three offices together here. I mean the offices are all over the scriptures. But here I found the text where we have all three offices in just a few verses uh, together. So Christ is the anointed one. He is anointed as prophet, as priest, and as king, irrevocably and eternally. Now we come to our second point. Now aren't you happy that there are not three? Now we come to the anointed Christians. Question and answer 32. But why are you called a Christian? And I love this about the Heidelberg Catechism. He always comes back to us. And we sit there and we hear all these wonderful explanations that the Heidelberg Catechism gives us and suddenly points at us and says, what about you? What does this mean for you? Application. So important for us to know what this means for us. And he asks, why are you called a Christian? And the answer is because by faith I am a member of Christ and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. 
Well, that's also a lot of information. Have you ever asked yourself why we are called Christians? And this is not only an extra biblical explanation because we are called after Christ, which is true to an extent, of course. But in, in Acts chapter 11, it explains about the disciples in Antioch. This was the beginning of the time, or this was the first time, that the disciples were called Christians in Acts chapter 11. So Christians is a biblical term for us, but there's not only one reason that we are named after Christ, which is part of the answer. And that's what most people will answer. But there's a deeper reason. And the Heidelberg Catechism states this reason quite clearly. It says, because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I hope you understand what I'm slowly getting at. We said before that anointing is an induction into office or into offices. So which office are we talking about? Well, I have to introduce you to a new office in case you have never heard about it. There's not only three offices in the URCNA. There's not only the minister, the elder, and the deacon. There's a fourth one, and that's the office of believer. And that, of course, uh, we all believe in the URCNA. And the Heidelberg Catechism gets exactly at this office without naming it, but it is very obvious what is meant here. And this office of believer is not just one office. It is a gathering of several offices. And we look into Scripture to find out what these offices are. In Acts chapter 2, Peter proclaims the prophecy of Joel fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 around Pentecost. And he says in his sermon, and in the last day, verse uh, 17 I believe it is, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, without going deeper into everything that is explained in this quoting of Joel's prophecy, we must see that the New Testament clearly designates New Testament believers as prophets. New Testament believers are prophets. And now let me add another passage to this. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Now this is becoming work, isn't it? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests, better would be kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen, it says here. Now from this we can see, we can gather only from these two passages. There is a, a legion of other passages. I just brought these together because they're most compact. And all three offices are in there. We can see that we are partakers of Christ's threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. We also partake in these three offices. How Adam blew it and failed, through Christ these offices were restored, first in him and through him also in those who are called by his name. First the office of priest. 
it says to confess his name. We are partakers in the office, uh, I should say a prophet, to confess his name. Uh, Matthew chapter 10 verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before man, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. This is the office of prophet where we uh, speak the truth, where we profess the Lord Jesus Christ, where we stand strong in proclaiming him both with our mouths and also with our lives. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That is the office of prophet that every believer has to profess and to confess boldly and wisely the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the second office that we partake in, of course, is the office of priest. It says in the Heidelberg Catechism, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life. Now, this is the office of priest that we are, and this is, of course, language of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we are called to give ourselves as a living sacrifice have you ever thought how absurd that sounds? A living sacrifice. Every sacrifice that I know in, of in the Bible had to die. And here suddenly it talks about the living sacrifice. Well, since we are uh, in Christ and Christ has died uh, for the atonement, for our sins, we don't have to die anymore but we also have to become priests like him. We have to imitate him in that, but we don't have to die, uh, most likely for that, but we shall be living sacrifices, which basically means we shall give our lives for the glory of God, as it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And I, I, I just um, say it again, as I said in the past a few times, the first 11 chapters of Romans are just the gospel an in-depth explanation of the gospel from every side, defended against all possible uh, attacks. So 11 chapters of gospel truth, of God's grace uh, basically put into our veins in high dosage. So we are full of grace when we come to chapter 12. And then it says that, I appeal to you, therefore because of this wonderful grace of the gospel, by the mercies of God, or you could translate, in light of the mercies that you have just read in the first 11 chapters, to present your bodies, which means your whole you, your body and your soul, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So it's basically saying you have received the gospel, you have received, God gave you everything in his own son, so you can live. He has bought you with his precious blood, now you are his, and now live as a living sacrifice for the glory of his name. That is Romans chapter 12 verse 1. That's our office of a priest. And in a culture like ours, that is so affluent, and so wealthy, and has so many distractions, it sometimes becomes really hard to remember that. That our whole lives, our thinking, our speaking, 
and our living has to be for the glory of God. Everything. All of it. A living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. That's our office where we partake in the office of priest with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally the office of king where it tells us and afterward, after we have uh, professed and confessed the name of Christ, have lived a life of being a living sacrifice, afterwards to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. That's the kingship in which we will partake in all eternity. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus writes about the final judgment, or he speaks about the final judgment. And it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king, here is called king again, then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That is the office of king in which we also will partake. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. We will be reigning. We will be kings with the Lord Jesus Christ. A generation not only of priests, but a generation of kings. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now I have to mention Pentecost here. It is connected to what we're talking about. Because that's when New Testament believers were anointed with the Holy Spirit for their partaking in the three offices of Christ, of prophet, priest, and king. So having heard all this, you now understand that there are not, strictly speaking, not only three offices in the church, minister, elder, and deacon, but four. Minister, elder, deacon, and believer. And this changes everything. This makes you all office bearers, which means you have a responsibility. A responsibility before God and a responsibility before your brothers and sisters. You, you will change from a mere consumer to an office bearer. And you are obliged as he is anointed and you are anointed with him to confess Christ's name to present yourself to Christ as a living sacrifice of thanks to strive with the free conscience against sin and the devil in this life and you're also called to afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity what a wonderful news we have received here from our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. May he help us through his Holy Spirit that we truly can live out this office for the glory of his name and for the good of his church. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God,
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, how we thank you for these wonderful three offices that have been presented to us through your word, through the means of the Heidelberg Catechism. And we ask you, living God, that you help us to fill out these offices, not out of fear, but out of gratitude. And because we love you, because we love our King, Jesus Christ, our priest and our prophet. May we walk in your ways joyfully. May we confess you boldly. May we be living sacrifices all the days of our lives. And may we then rule in glory in all eternity for the glory of our King, in whose name we pray. Amen.